Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In this episode, I interview New York Times best-selling author and Whole30 co-founder Dallas Hartwig on how we should be moving, eating, sleeping and connecting according to each season in order to optimize mental brain and physical health and function. Dallas has some great tips that will challenge your thinking, like why we should be more active and do more endurance training in summer and less so in winter, focusing more on strength building and shorter bursts of activity. Before we begin, I want to tell you about something that I'm so excited about. You can now pre-order my new book, 101 Ways to Be Less Stressed. This book is packed with simple self-care strategies to help boost your mind, mood and mental health. Right now, when you pre-order, you can get 20% off. This book is a great gift for holidays and birthdays or simply just for yourself. Just go to drleaf.com for more details and to order. The link will also be in the show notes. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and on social media. And now... On to today's interview. Dallas, I am so excited to have you in the studio with me today and to interview you about your fascinating new book, The Four Seasons Solution. I love your approach. I think this is so good for mental health, which is really why I wanted to talk to you about what you do. So welcome. Thank you. It's going to be fun. So before we start, can you just tell my viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself and, you know, what motivates you and tell us sure. something that's not in your bio, you know, something and just, you know, something <laughs> right. interesting, you know, that people something like all the, in, the inside story. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, uh, this is one that I'll often use. I wrote a little bit into the book, but my, when I was born, my parents were homesteaders in eastern Ontario, Canada, and we lived in what was effectively a log cabin with no electricity and no running water. And heated through the long, cold Ontario winters with, with, uh, you know, with wood, had oil lamps. And we had one luxurious propane lantern that was sort of our modern luxury. But like we were homesteading. And I didn't realize it so much later, but that really informed the way I viewed the world and my connection to the earth because that's how, I, that's how things were in my early life. There just was no alternative. It wasn't you know, a return to the land for me. It was where I started. And then drifted off into much more conventional and destructive technological industrial spaces. But in sort of coming back around to what we, I think a lot of us find ourselves doing is looking back and being like, what lessons can I learn from my earlier life that I can circle back to? So I'm doing the same thing. I love that. I love that. And I think it's so important because your origin story is always part of where you go in your life. And it's all part of your, you've got to for take sure. all the pieces and, and carry it forward. So now you're very well known for the whole 30 with Melissa. And so, but mm-hmm. you've, you, you now working, you've brought out this new book and you really are going back to seasonal mental health, literally. And I love totally. that. And I love, I just love that approach. So tell us why you wrote this book and you, and you know, what prompted it, what motivated you and what's the book about? Okay. Those are, those are big questions. The simple answer of why I wrote the book is this, idea has been boring its way out of my brain for a decade. And I've resisted, resisted writing it, not wanted to, tried to come up with other things to do. And this one was like, no, you have to do this. So in a lot of ways, the Four Season Solution is the prequel to our first book. It starts with food, um, which was published originally in 2012. But the ideas in this book, as far as addressing the inherent biological seasonal oscillations, but not just seasonal on a like four seasons per year, but also on a circadian timeline. And then on that sort of longer lifetime timeline, that's been kicking around in my head for the better part of a decade. And I've spoken about it a handful of places and tried to avoid writing the book and finding the book with like, you have to do this. So I did that as a function of being able to like clear some mental space and be able to kind of go off in different directions. And I'm not entirely sure what those different directions are yet, but making up some, making, cleaning up the mental mess. I see you're, the to, right, you're uh, on the right podcast. I'm on the right track, absolutely. <laughs> but then, but, but really, it, it came down to I thought, I think that these are really powerful ideas that are able to sort of integrate specific physiology, whether it's circadian biology or nutrition or whatever, with kind of more esoteric and philosophical and observational things about the way we live and the way our psycho-emotional spaces 
ebb and flow as we age and at different times of the year. So kind of this, it was actually a difficult book to tell a publisher about because they were like, well, what is it? And I was like, hey, it's all of these things. So, I, but I, I wrote it because I think that it has the power to profoundly shift the way we live, not just like starting right now with some very specific behavioral things, but to kind of shift the way we think about the, the trajectory of our lives longer term. Because I know the last decade, of, as I've been kicking this stuff around in the background, it's definitely influenced the way my own professional trajectory and also my own personal growth has really kind of started to follow a trending pattern that I write about in the book. So I wanted to bring this to the rest of the world. I love that. I love the the fact that you went back to your roots. That's really prompted a lot of this thinking in terms of how mm-hmm. you grew up. And just, just the other day, because we're moving to Seattle, we live in Dallas at the moment. We come from mm-hmm. South Africa, which is four seasons. And, and we go to Dallas, which is two seasons, freezing and boiling. And yep. it's been, I have found it so hard to adjust. You know, my kids as well, I've got four kids and they, they moved to California as soon as they could to get it. And even there, it's, you don't really get four seasons. So we actually right. moving, moving to Seattle. And when people say, why Seattle? Besides the fact that it's beautiful and there's mountains mm-hmm. and water. It's I always say it's got four seasons. Absolutely. And it's just that it, it that's what my body is used to. It's what I've grown mm-hmm. up with. And yet it's and it's and yes, obviously there's different seasons around the world, but it just I know and that's a more surface thing. But my body grew up with that and it's craving that. Yeah. And when I when I looked at your book and started reading your book, I thought this is really speaks to me because that's I, f- I need that. And I love your concepts of how we're living in a perpetual summer. You know, I highlighted a few little things. I thought that was so good and how we need right. to feel a bit more like a babe. We need a change in winter. We need to do a little bit of hibernating in the winter. For sure. So I love that. Can you just talk about that concept for a while, about the seasonal? Yeah. Yeah. And so you, I think you bring up a really, a really great starting point for that because there are sort of four seasons that most of us are generally familiar with. Depending on where we live and where we've grown up, we might not feel them so in us. I mean, I'm like you. I'm very much used to four distinct seasons that have very different feelings and, and sort of psycho-emotional experiences associated with them. But even if people are not, even if they're not living in that space or kind of haven't grown up in that space, they know what it means. So it became, it became a very simple sort of, sort of symbolic framework to talk about these different experiences that even if you live in Miami or you live in Cape Town or you live in Moscow, you can still glean the sort of symbolic phases and steps out of this. Um, so, so in a way, it's a sort of a shorthand. In the, the other, almost the almost inverse of that is that for a lot of us, a good portion of our evolutionary history passed through some place where there were distinct seasons. And if you go all the way back, I suppose you go back to equatorial Africa, where there's not going to be a huge amount of, you know, day length discrepancy. But for, for the, for most of us, for a lot of our, our evolutionary history, there is significant change across the course of times of year for the circadian biology, the, the length of day piece of it. And as I write about in the book, you well know, and your audience well knows, the light-dark cycle really anchors so many other systems and gives us sort of a reference point. So I you know, kind of poke fun at myself. My first book was entitled, It Starts With Food. And now I'm not entirely sure. And actually, one of the chapters in The Four Season Solution is now entitled, It Starts With Sleep. Like, Maybe kind of, you know, so my thinking it, uh, it's you know, has changed, shifted though. over time. No, but that's very good. You know, that's one mark of, we always say one mark of a good scientist is the ability right. to actually admit you've made a mistake or admit something wasn't quite what you thought it was so that you can totally. continue investigating. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's, you know, for, for me, it's like, was I right? Was I wrong? I don't know. I, I, people still sometimes ask, like, does it start with sleep? Is that the most important? And I say, I, I don't know. You know, it depends how you quantify most important, but it's certainly profoundly impactful in terms of the way our all of our different systems integrate and coordinate or don't and, and become very discoordinated. You know, if we're if our eating schedule and all of the kind of clock apparatuses that are in our digestive tract are in a totally different system or in a totally different timeline than um, our you know metabolism that affects when we have cortisol and when we have you know insulin and like when like these things need to be and always were for our evolutionary path, tightly coordinated and tightly regulated by the light-dark cycle. And we've wildly disrupted that with artificial light. So I kind of write about the hearkening back to normalizing and synchronizing things using some of the cues we take from our evolutionary path. And then dragging those over and dropping them into the real world because I'm not advocating for going back to the homesteading lifestyle that I grew up with. I like having electricity. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of things that we can integrate into the modern world 
without giving up an awful lot that really profoundly enrich and stabilize our lives. I love that. I also find it, I'm very interested in the fact that you refer to the super SCN, the super, I always get that, that word, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Yeah. I, I'm so familiar with that that word always uh, always stumbles out of my mouth. <laughs> I have anyway, words like that too. I have words oh like that Oh my gosh, that just like gets me. And it doesn't matter. And it still gets me. But anyway, the hyper, what's fascinating is that's our whole related to our internal clock and it's related to the yeah. hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is so related to mental health. I mean, it's the brain of the endocrine system and it's 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 in the pathway of thought formation and it gets activated with all the energy, the frequencies. I, I use QEG in my neuroscientific research. Right. And you can really see the importance of what your brain rhythms are in those specific when you look at what we call source localization so when for example people are highly anxious and not sleeping we'll actually see a lot of high beta in that particular area which is interesting because if you've got too much high energy over the hypothalamic area it's going to affect your sleep so when you talk about sleep being right. you know and and yet then again we've got to be careful we don't overdo the sleep thing because if you tell people sleep so important then you know that makes them worry more and they can they sleep less so sure. worrying about not sleeping but it's just interesting to to talk about how the hypothalamus, which is very much key in determining your emotional responses, it mm-hmm. was, it's a respondent. Your hypothalamus doesn't do anything. It generates, it responds. Our brain just responds. But it is the part that does respond to our emotional sort of decision-making. And mm-hmm. it's very related to cycles. And then our whole body and the, all the waves, those high, the high beta, all of those work in cycles. And all of our blood chemistry works in cycles. And all of our, so everything works in cycles. So it's very Appropriate. I just I found that link very interesting in your work. Yeah, thank you. I, I totally agree. And I think that that's one of the things that we have kind of missed in the modern world. And especially in the world where we are looking at, you know, looking at our kind of our, our evolutionary past and our, you know, kind of innate physiologies and trying to kind of use that to hack and inform and alter and improve the quality of our lives. That's great. We should be doing that. But I think we have often missed the fact that the world out there, the world that we evolved in, the world that our bodies expect our environments to be like, is oscillatory and dynamic and not oscillatory on an on-off way, in a binary way, but in a like sine wave kind of graduated way. So that the, the shifts across each day, month, and year are, are subtle, are small that aggregate, that add up to huge amounts of change. But each day, it's not, uh, you know, we do this thing and then we're going to switch and do a different, radically different diet for the next three months and we're going to do a radically different thing. It's a gradual transition. And I think we've really lost all of those transitions in favor of getting extremely precise and specific and descriptive and sometimes quantitative about the way we live. But I think we've really missed the fact that that's not the way it's ever been before. We've just lived in according to the in accordance with the environment. And so one of the major themes of the book is encouraging us to reconnect with our innate wisdom, our intuition that is directly linked to what's going on outside in terms of the light dark cycle, the thermal fluxes, in terms of what's going on with food availability and the way we move in that environment changes seasonally. And we don't do a very good job of that in the modern world. And I'm, I'm calling both for a relaxation of the neuroses around health and also a, recontact, a, a reconnection to the wisdom that's already in us that we've largely pushed aside. And we've been taught to trust physicians and dietitians and physiologists and to, you know, all the other, the experts, so to speak, in favor of saying, what do I actually feel? feel right now. And my personal experience over the years has been the more I'm able to notice what I'm actually feeling and what I'm sort of feeling the urge to do, the more my body directs me in exactly the place I need to go. If there's one thing you should be worried about not getting enough of, it's enzymes. Enzymes are the workhorses of digestion. Nearly everyone lacks digestive enzymes, and that's why we suffer from digestive issues like bloating, indigestion, and gas. You're not what you eat, you are what you digest. We lose enzymes as we age, so if you don't have enough enzymes, you might only be absorbing 40% of the foods you are eating. What a waste. My go-to enzyme, and the one that really works, is Masszymes by Bioptimizers. 
For the fastest shipping, go to www.buyoptimizers.com forward slash DrLeaf and use the coupon code DrLeaf10 to save up to 48% of select packages to get the most full spectrum and effective digestive enzyme product ever. That's code DrLeaf10 for 10% off your order at buyoptimizers.com forward slash DrLeaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Oh my gosh, we are in the same wheelhouse. I've just finished my 18th book. It's called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, the title of the podcast. And yeah. I, I just was actually editing a section last night where I was talking because the whole thing is about mind and mind management mm-hmm. and and tapping into your non-conscious mind, which is no one studies the non-conscious mind. People talk about the right. subconscious, but I distinct, I've done 30 years of research around the non-conscious, subconscious and conscious and how it's different. Mm-hmm. But the non-conscious mind is where truth is. It's where our wisdom is. It's where what, what we need to actually survive yes. is there and what we need to do is the busyness of our conscious mind actually blocks us tuning into the non-conscious mind so when your non-conscious mind is out of rhythm to kind of go with the flow of your of how you approach things the energy levels get messed up and this is all quantum this is all quantum science quantum physics and so on so it's not anything weird it's total science but yeah. if you if you get out of if you get out of rhythm in whatever way in, in this hurry sickness life that we live in, having to always achieve, achieve, achieve. You speak about that in your book as well and getting external happiness coming in and that kind of stuff. You create a disruption in the energy flow in your non-conscious mind, kind of like when you over-exercise and you get a, and you get the, you know, the lactic acid buildup in your muscles and you have to release that, that energy. And that, that when, whenever you have like a toxic issue or toxic something going on in your life, your non-conscious is truth. So it picks that up and it sends prompts to your conscious mind to make Make a change, and if we tune in, we can get into the wisdom of our unconscious mind. I mean, I've just been I'm writing my whole book is about my mental about this. I can't, so, I can't, I can't, I can't wait so for the excited. book because it's exactly well, yeah. Well, we, we we got lots to talk about, so this is so exciting. <laughs> so that's why I love your book. I mean, because you're talking on the you know the rhythm is just so important. We sure. we've got this. You know, tell us more. Tell us about you talk about the four the focus on the four seasons, the four keys of health. Do you want to talk around those two? Sure. So one of the challenges in writing this book is there's so many different moving parts and so many different, it's a very um, multidimensional model. And that makes it, for me, not being really a trained writer, that's a very difficult thing to wrangle into a book. But I write about, you know, four seasons and I talk about the different behaviors and components that happen in each of those. And maybe we can circle back to kind of some of the neurochemical parts of that, because I'm fascinated by that stuff. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. But the, the four components, the four factors that I think oh, won't surprise really anybody, I write about food, I write about sleep, but not just sleep, but sort of an asterisk on that. Really, it's a reframing of the discussion around sleep to include not just actual times at sleep, but actually the light and dark physiologies, respectively, because we have different light and dark physiologies. And sure, most of the time when we're sleeping, it's dark. But the imbalance that we have, again, because of artificial light and the sort of fast pace of the modern world, is that we often only experience darkness when we're asleep. And I think that's a really major problem. And so I really encourage a recalibration and separating out the light-dark cycle from from sleep. Because most of the time, and certainly in my earlier years, I really only experienced true darkness when I was going to bed and and the moments before, you know, and because the circadian rhythms in all of our different body systems are coordinated by the presence of bright light first thing in the morning. And I write about the importance of morning light to anchor those systems, but then it is the absence of light going into the evening and going into night that allows, you know, melatonin pulses and allows us to kind of prepare and to shift into that nighttime darkness physiology. And if we don't actually experience darkness until the moment we flick off the lights or put our phone away seconds before we crawl into bed, what we're having is a really big offset, a really big lag in the opportunity to allow our bodies to shift into that nighttime physiology. And so again, using the natural world as a reference point, what we know, and so if you can sort of put yourself in the mindset or the experience of maybe going camping or spending a long weekend where you're outside all the time, or if you could imagine a hunter-gatherer you know, world, the, the ancient world, but it's all kind of the same. But if we're outside for most of the day, or maybe you're even on a, a vacation at the beach and you're in the sun all day and you're outside and it's beautiful and you're relaxed, and you, you know, maybe you come back to camp. If you're camping, you have a campfire, you cook dinner, 
And depending on the time of year and at what time, you know, it's getting dark by 7 or 8 p.m., you're pretty relaxed. You're like tired, but not in the exhausted way. You're like pleasantly tired, you know, sort of that very connective, peaceful, grounded, serotonin kind of experience. And you're preparing for bed and nobody, unless they're, unless they're like, you know, college age kids, calling them kids gives away my age. But unless you're, unless you tend to be a younger person or behaving like a younger person, usually by that, you know, kind of early evening, you're like ready and ready to go to sleep. And that's the natural, your body's natural response to getting lots of movement, lots of relaxation, lots of bright light exposure during the midday. And all of the physiology cascade happens downstream from that. So then it's natural for us to feel that peaceful, relaxed feeling, preparing us for sleep much earlier than we would when we are at home with the lights on in front of our screen. Because then we often have the different experience of being kind of tired but wired. And very common experience with sort of the disrupted you know, disrupted circadian rhythm, specifically around cortisol. And I, I say this in the book, but you know, the presence of the blue wavelengths, which we're increasingly recognizing as disruptive to our circadian biology, the Blue light is effectively the message that it is midday, it's blue sky, and we should be alert. Like, that's the message that our brains get through the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that's you the message. You got it right. You see the I got it right. I've practiced it a thousand times. Um, but, but that's the message. So, if we have computer screens, tablets, phones, TV in the minutes or, you know, short time leading up to bed, we're sending ourselves a mismatched message of, we should be awake. We should be alert. And then oh, I'm supposed to go to sleep right now really quickly. And that's not the way it works. It's, you know, our systems are not binary and they don't turn off like the, like a light switch would. So I write about sleep and darkness in that way. I write about movement and how that changes. Could, over could course I say, could quickly ask you something or say yeah. something about the sleep that I like the fact that you stress that it's not binary because our actual physiology is quantum which is there's just no time and space in it. Yep. So we manifest and we live in time and space, but we actually, even though we live in time and space, that time and space, we actually, it's almost like an illusion. It's only 1%. The rest is mm-hmm. actually quantum. So quantum means it's not a, a straight line. And that's right. why transition is so vital because you've stressed that. You can't just, you know, switch off. And mm-hmm. that's why people are wired but tired was the excellent example. That of a lot of the reasons why people aren't sleeping. So if you still have to do work at night or whatever, but you've got to, it's the transition. I think that's sure. what people are missing, aren't they? If I hear what you're saying, that transition allows mm-hmm. the cycle to happen. It allows that Absolutely. whole rhythm to happen. It's really yeah, interesting. For sure. Yeah, thank you. And then the fourth factor I write about is connection. So we have food, movement, sleep, or darkness, light, dark, and connection. So that's the four. So movement, you need to speak a bit about. Yeah, I'll talk about, I'll talk about movement. So movement, and I use the word movement as opposed to exercise, again, deliberately, because movement is more than just exercise in the same way that the light, dark cycle is more than just sleep. And so movement includes body postures and positions throughout the course of the day, while we are sleeping, what positions we sleep in. And a lot of the movement component of it is the reintroduction of what I call functional movement spread throughout the course of the day in a way that looks a lot more like what our hunter-gatherer ancestors would have done. So there's a widely varied, intermittent, sort of episodic mix of walking and carrying climbing things, of lifting things, of occasionally kind of sprinting, kind of the the fast, hard movement. But they're very much real world movements that look a lot like doing yard work and going on a hike and playing with your kids. Like these are very kind of three-dimensional things. And I talk about anchors in the book as kind of a, a central hub for things that don't oscillate, even though so much of the book is about oscillation. There are some things that don't really oscillate. And in terms of movement, the anchor for movement is resistance training, which you could say in a kind of a more colloquial way of just functional movement, of picking up and carrying heavy things, your body and other things, whether that is children, food, stuff that you need, you know, but it's just doing real world stuff. And that's the anchor. And then the amount of low intensity, long duration movement that looks like cardiovascular training or hiking or playing around. And the high intensity, what we call high intensity interval training, the kind of you know high to maximum intensity stuff for much shorter periods of time, occur in more or less inverse proportions across the course of the year. So summertime, things we already do in the summertime, like going on long bike rides and going to the lake to swim and working in the garden and doing these kind of 
long duration, lower intensity things are the perfect things to be doing in the summertime. And the inverse of that then is that in the winter, especially places that get very cold and dark, it is much less general movement. And when we're, we are doing kind of training exercise, because that's what most of us do specifically, we're doing it in a much more high intensity, short duration, perhaps interval training kind of way, because that is what we would have done for the ancient past. We would not have gone out and gone for leisurely, playful eight-hour hikes in the wintertime. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't even feel right, you know? And so, of course, we can go and do you know, cross-country skiing in the wintertime, and it's not wrong to do at all. But in terms of the most evolutionarily and physiologically informed kinds of movement, I think that the inverse relationships between intensity and duration are pretty important concepts there. So, the other part of that is it also looks a lot like what you feel like doing. Because if I was like, hey, why don't you go out and you know, do a long hike, you know, maybe a six-hour hike, and nobody wants to do that in the wintertime. But to say, let's go to the park for the afternoon, we're like, yeah, that sounds great you know, in the summertime. So it's very much that tapping into the, the, the I say wisdom, but it's really, we already know. It is wisdom. Yeah, it's thing, in us. Mm. Yeah, it's in us. And and I think we override that so often to our own detriment. So then the fourth factor then is connection. And I kind of break that down into kind of four kind of sub factors. I talk about connection to self, sort of self-awareness, self-knowledge, being still with oneself. I talk about connection to place, to the earth, to the environment, sort of having a, a home, knowing where your roots are, where you're from, and having a sense of connectedness to that place. I talk about connection to others. That's kind of the obvious one, the social connections, because we are deeply social creatures. And I talk about connection to purpose, to something greater than ourselves. And that leans heavily on Abraham Maslow's work in the hierarchy of needs that we, as we meet our most basic survival needs and then our needs for love and belonging and our needs for contribution, what we eventually get to in our sort of natural, again, very self-guided ascendant kind of way is we get to this place where we have a desire to contribute to something greater than ourselves and perhaps beyond our lifetime. And so I think, uh, you know, and the research is quite strong on having a sense of purpose massively impacts quality of life, longevity, and every other metric that I can find that matters. Well, Dan Whitner's um, hot on that. I'm sure you know yeah. that this, the Blue Zones. I interviewed Absolutely. him recently, and that consistent across the Blue Zones is that sense of purpose. You know, it's like it's like number almost. I think it's number one or number two, and then the, the then the connection, the yeah. sort of spiritual connections, is like number two. So those mm-hmm. two hover at the, around the top, and then it's the other stuff. You know, the, right. so it's not just the diet. It's which everyone just assumes Blue Zone diet. It's not. Right. It's that it's that spiritual connection, and it's so, right. it goes so much to for the 38 years of research I've done in this field is that that deep spiritual non. I just I call it the non-conscious mind, but it's all the stuff you're talking yeah. about. The mind that is what we need to address first and foremost, and then those. Those other things just are a natural part of it because it's your mind that will drive your sleep, will drive your movement, will drive your connection, totally. everything. So I totally agree with you. How are you explaining it? Yeah. I love, I love how you're explaining it. So important. Awesome. Did you know that the majority of serotonin, the feel-good chemical, is made in your gut? And I'm sure by now you've heard about the gut-brain connection. Well, when your digestion and gut aren't functioning like they should, this can greatly affect your mood and mental health. Thankfully, we can fix a lot of these issues with better diet and the right probiotics. That's why I love and recommend Thrive. Thrive makes this process really simple by offering an affordable at-home gut health test so you can know the state of your gut health and what problems it may be causing. They ship the test kit to your house in a discreet package. Once you take the test, you'll submit your results to Thrive with a prepaid shipping label. Thrive will analyze your sample in the accredited laboratory and their team will analyze your results to develop custom probiotics just for you to help treat these problems. These aren't the one-size-fits-all probiotics that you'll find at your local grocery store. These are personalized to you based on the results of the test. If you want to take gut health seriously, visit trythrive.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. That's try, T-H-R-Y-V-E slash Dr. Leaf. And join thousands of people who have taken charge of their digestive health with the help of Thrive at Home Gut Health Tests. And just for my listeners, get 10% off your test kit at trythrive.com forward slash Dr. Leaf with the code Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. So that's the four. So just very quickly run through the four again. So we've got food, movement, 
Pleep, which is kind of shorthand for light and dark, and connection, which has four parts. So what I do then, you know, in this big unwieldy model is I try to nest all of those four components into four seats and help people to understand how those things on one, at first blush, you're like well, four factors and connection has four sub factors and there's four seasons, like all of a sudden it gets kind of crazy, but it's really, to me, once it's sort of percolated through the system a bit, it's actually really simple because the wisdom is already in your body anyway. So really what I'm saying is when you pay attention to what your natural inclinations are, there is a deep truth there. And so you don't have to always be consciously thinking about what should I be eating in the spring if I live up north. It doesn't have to be complicated. Like it has to, it, It's a little more of what sounds good to me. And food is an obvious one. A lot of us already have kind of natural cultural patterns and, and kind of personal preferences built in there. You know, springtime, you know, tender spring greens sound, sound really good. They're appealing. They're natural. We're like, yeah, cool. In the same way as eating a kale and strawberry salad in the middle of winter sounds a little bit not quite right. And and the inverse of like you doing a really hearty like beef and root vegetable stew in midsummer also doesn't sound right, right? And doesn't sound right or doesn't feel right is one of the little hooks or one of the little shortcuts to like, maybe that's actually not right for me, you know? doesn't sound right, doesn't feel right, sounds funky, or that sounds really good. And I think the challenge, one of the challenges there is, is determining, are we experiencing a dysfunctional craving, like let's say a sugar craving, or are we tapping into a innate wisdom? And those things can sometimes be hard to kind of tease apart because they both feel like something I want to do, but they're, they're different. And I use a couple of words to kind of help tease those apart. I talk about cravings versus longing or yearning. And you can map that onto the hierarchy of needs as well, because cravings tend to be the survival-based need, the things that are needed for immediate survival. You think about at the very base of the pyramid, we've got food and shelter and water and you know those sorts of things. And we have cravings for the neurological stimuli that are associated with that stuff, right? We have longings and yearnings for belonging and connection to a sense of purpose and your contribution to something that transcends ourselves. We don't have cravings for that. And so those are the two words that I kind of use. And if people get stuck and they're not quite sure, is this deep wisdom or is this a dysfunctional craving because my environment is really mismatched with my physiology, the question then becomes, am I experiencing a craving for something or am I, am I longing for something? And I think that tends to be a pretty natural break point for people. They can, they can pretty easily answer that question. If you dig deep enough, you can, because as you say, that internal wisdom is there. It's just a matter of sure. slowing down and self-regulating enough that you do it. And that's, yeah, that's a big, that's really yeah. good. I love that. I love that. That's really interesting. Okay, so how has the modern life disrupted our ancient genes? Oh, man, in every way conceivable. And what are the worst, cul- <laughs> and what are the worst culprits? <laughs> for sure. So I think about, you know, I write about this in the book, the sort of the, the history of humankind and, and the way we left the hunter-gatherer kind of connected to the earth lifestyle. And agriculture was the first big step away. And then later the industrial revolution, you know, and kind of all of the, the sort of civilizing aspects of that and that, and that timeline. And then later the, you know, the, the widespread use of electricity and then the kind of technological and digital ages, like we've just gotten further and further and further disconnected from that natural world. And so we've disrupted our ability to, you know, the circadian biology, our natural rhythm is, is the, I think, the most sharply contrasted. The way we live now in the modern world is, is not even remotely like what our bodies expect. So I already touched on the fact that we, we are not binary. We are very, very dynamic, very flowy in that sense. So when we, when we have the absence of adequate bright light during the daytime, because we're largely indoors. And I read about the perception of brightness is very, very different than the actual amount of light we're exposed to. So um, I played around with a light meter and, and so there's a lot of research on the amount of brightness required to really entrain and coordinate our circadian rhythms. And it's much, much brighter than what we achieve in homes and offices and department stores. And it doesn't feel like if you go into a department store, or a grocery store, it might feel brightly lit. You know, the fluorescent lights might feel bright, but really, we're looking at four or five hundred lux, which is a measurement of brightness there. 
And if we compare that to the amount of light outside, even on a cloudy, even on an overcast day, that can be 10,000 lux. It's a huge difference. It's not really even, it's such a large difference that our bodies don't really even register the, the sort of brightly lit indoor atmosphere as bright light. It doesn't register as bright enough to really entrain and coordinate those circadian rhythms. So this, you know, somewhere around 10,000 lux and brighter. I mean, if you go midday on a sunny day, it's like 100,000 lux. So we have an enormous discrepancy between the amount of light that we expose ourselves to in the largely indoor light. And we're craving that it's, light, aren't we? We can, we, and our body needs that. I mean, that light has, it's the electromagnetic light wave is so important for, for brain and body function. And it's your mind mm -hmm. works on the same frequencies, the electromagnetic light waves. You yeah. know, it, it just, it's so interesting because I grew up in South Africa and it's very, it's very open and the mm -hmm. homes are open and I had huge windows and you don't even put curtains up in a lot of the places. Yeah. So you can't, and you're outside. So there's so much light and coming to, to the United States, specifically, we live in Dallas where everything's setting. These, everything's dark and closed and lights are turned mm -hmm. off and everywhere you it's dark it, it's like I'm yeah. going and opening windows and opening and trying yeah. to get I need space I need light and the mm -hmm. more you've the more you get it the more you crave it for as sure. well yeah well and one of one of the reasons for that is the really bright light triggers the synthesis of serotonin and so you know serotonin is very well known for its role in mood and appetite and all sorts of other things but again I go back to that kind of example that most of us can picture like you're you're on a beach, you know, you're on a beach, you're on vacation, or you're outside and it's middle of the summer and you get to that end of the day and you've been outside all day and you have this very, for me, it feels like a very peaceful, relaxed, grounded feeling. It's belonging, it's connection, it's comfort. It's, it's like, it's not exhaustion. It's not the same feeling we get at the end of a long work week. It's a very relaxed, peaceful place. And I partly can attribute that to the synthesis of large amounts of serotonin from being outside and being exposed to direct bright light for a good chunk of the day. Mm. You almost and feel you almost feel a sense of bliss, don't you? It's like a sense absolutely. of and there's another hormone that's related to that that will be released with bright light as well. And or sense of bliss is anandamide, and it's very related to mm -hmm. memory to memory brain building and also to mental health and to feeling mm -hmm. in control and coping. So that's also another thing that happens with the bright light, which is the natural bright yeah. light. <laughs> Yeah, well, and the thing, and this is the thing that I find so interesting about a, a model like this, the seasonal approach, is that it's not just four distinct, unrelated categories. These things are all connected. So, for example, I write about different hormones and neurotransmitters, sort of symbolically within each of those seasons. So, briefly, spring is dopamine. It is excitement and energy and anticipation and the, the chasing after reward. And it is, you know, it's it, it, it's the feeling we get. When we spontaneously decide to go clean the garden or clean the garage or work in the yard, you know, or go for a run when the spring comes around, because it's that like, let's go do some stuff. It's a very energizing, pleasurable response. And dopamine then gets neurochemically transformed into noradrenaline and adrenaline. And adrenaline is kind of the sort of symbolic sort of hormone for summertime. And summertime is stress hard work, long days. It's the time when we do the thing. And that's true, you know, in terms of, you know, it's a little bit different in the modern world because we kind of work all year round in roughly the same way. But physically, it is definitely more stressful. We tend to get less sleep in the summertime. And we have that sense of like, I'm tired when the end of the summer rolls around. And we're often really thrilled that like the kids are going back to school because they get a bit of a break. And, and so I write about this concept of chronic summer, of this excessive stress and adrenaline and focus on productivity and on doing stuff, right? Because that's what adrenaline does. It mobilizes resources to make us good at doing stuff. And we are good at doing stuff, but then we never end that behavior pattern. We never shift and turn directions from that sort of expansive mode into more of a contractive mode, which is what fall and winter are about. So fall then becomes this coming home at the end of the day, at the end of the year as we're going into the actual fall, and also going into the second half of our lives, we have this um, sense of settling, of slowing down, of peace, of belonging, of connection, of gratitude, of generosity. And all of those things are very connected to serotonin. So we have this sort of sequence here 
And you can map it out across the course of a day. You know, the end of the day, there would be that sort of serotonin. And then serotonin gets biochemically, excuse me, biochemically converted into melatonin, which prepares us for that deep restorative sleep. So each of these phases has to occur in order in rough proportion, or else we're not able to do each of those different things. And we're increasingly recognizing the importance of sleep for all sorts of things, whether it's neurotransmitter synthesis or detoxification or, you know, like all kinds of stuff that goes on. We used to think sleep was like this inert state where we just turned up the lights and nothing, nothing happened until we woke up. And we're starting to appreciate that so many things go on when we're sleeping that are so important so that we can have the enriching and beautiful experience the next morning. And that's true. And that's kind of how I paint it in the seasons of our lives as well, because I think that sense of contribution to something larger than yourself, transcendence of self, really means going beyond just what's important to you in your lifetime and looking to the next spring beyond the winter of your life where you ultimately die. But there is that gift going forward to the next spring, to the next generation, to the future. And I think there's a, a beautiful way to reimagine the arc of spring to winter of our lives that doesn't feel quite so morbid and depressive. Because I think it's a flow, it's a whole cycle. Absolutely. And, it, and, it's a, and it's a cycle beyond our own lives. I love that. I love that. It's fascinating. Well, how would you translate this now into practical tips for our life? So how do we start changing our life to live seasonally? Yeah, great question. Um, of course, question, of course, I address, you know, extensively in the book, but there's a, there's a few really great starting points. I like, I like simple heuristics. So in the realm of food, food is relatively simple because the concept is eat the foods that are produced and available locally and regionally in your area at any given time. It means shop at your farmer's market, pick foods out of your vegetable garden if you're fortunate enough to have one, get to know what's available in your area. And that, of course, is going to look wildly different wherever you live in the world and at different times of year. And the farther north and south you are of the equator, the more significant the amplitude of variation is going to be. So if you live in northern Norway, it means that you don't have much going on in the way of fresh vegetable matter in December, January, February. And it also means that there's a lot of fresh plant matter in the midsummer because we've got really long days. So, so that's a simple heuristic for food. The heuristic for movement is stay strong and stay mobile year-round. Do lots of general movement in the summertime. Do small amounts of high intensity movement in the wintertime. Again, that inverse relationship between intensity and duration. The anchor or the heuristic for light dark for sleep is make your, make the experience of your body match what's going on in the natural light outside as closely as is practical. And I use the word practical because this is an admission. Like we have lives, we have jobs, we have schedules, we have families. But the closer you can match your own physiology to the natural world, the healthier and easier and more deeply intuitive and, and effortless things are going to feel. So get, so get closer to the natural rhythm outside in terms of light and dark. And in terms of connection, it could kind of go a bunch of different ways. But what we've done in this chronic summer modern world is we have chosen the relatively superficial and numerous social connections of summertime, which is perfectly appropriate and very normal in the summertime. But we've got stuck in that mode. And so then the, the call or the offering that I make in the book is to shift away from that perpetual expansion mode where we're trying to know more people, have more connections, have more friends, have more followers, and to pivot into a more contractive, grounded, peaceful connective kind of mode, that sort of fall season. And that means being more vulnerable and more present with fewer people who matter more to us. So it's a shift there. It's a reprioritizing. In the book, I write about anchor connections. And really what we notice is that feeling of deep belonging and connection, feeling like we have a place with our people, that's very much a serotonin experience. And so again, that's sort of the the stereotype, the, kind of the, the symbolic neurotransmitter there gives us a way of like, what am I looking for? What feeling am I going for? And for most of us, it is 
leaving the stress and stimulation of chronic summer and shifting to more of a fall type contraction and restorative mode. Are you looking to take your mental health healing journey to the next level and find sustainable solutions to some of your biggest struggles? Then join me at my 2020 Virtual Mental Health Solutions Summit, December 3 through 6. I will be joined by amazing guest speakers like Dr. Daniel Amen, who will be sharing some strategies on how to stop those automatic negative thoughts and keep your brain healthy. And Dr. Henry Cloud, who will be discussing when and how to set boundaries and how to enforce those boundaries. I will also be joined by Dr. Nicole Lepera, who will be discussing how to heal from childhood trauma, secondary trauma and more. Dr. Will Cole will be sharing some great tips on how to reduce inflammation in our brains and bodies and what to do and eat for optimal mental and brain health. Finally, my good friend, singer and member of the hit group Destiny's Child, Michelle Williams and I will talk you through how to make brain detoxing part of your everyday routine. There will also be sessions on how to stop overthinking, how to deal with toxic people and words and so much more. We are also pleased to be offering CME and CEU credits. For more information and to register, visit drleafconference.com. That's D-R-L-E-A-F-C-O-N-F-E-R-E-N-C-E.com. The link will also be in the show notes. That's fantastic. I mean, that's a really simple way of, of actually shifting your life without having to completely think, oh, I've got to completely rethink. It is right. a rethink, but it's not a difficult rethink because it's very logical. And it's a right. matter of standing back and taking stock of, okay, well, what am I doing? Am I actually going mm-hmm. through this change? Because we do crave that change. People crave the changes. Absolutely. Well, and this is we're, so much of us, you know, we're stuck in this chronic summer mode. We're stuck because we look around and we have uh, jobs and schedules and schools and all this stuff that sort of demands us to be on the go, connected, wired in 20, all the time. 24-7. It's just so unnatural. Absolutely. It's very unnatural. So we have this conflict. Now, that's why I think we've got the swing back. If you look at the wellness movement, which is just massive, the swing mm-hmm. back to, as you said, it kind of started first with just so much around eating. And then mm-hmm. it's shifted now to meditation. You know, eating was the big thing, meditation, the big yeah. thing. And now there's the move to we've got to slow down, you know, yeah. and it's kind of and, and there's that recognition of getting back to you can get more done when you slow down because you what you then do is quality, not quantity. It's Absolutely. almost like we've missed a little bit of a point there. So I'm glad you've emphasized that. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, and then, and I completely agree with that. I mean, that's what we've done is we have taken a really acceptable, healthy, normal, good thing of summer experience and behavior of success, of stress, of productivity. All those things are good in their context, in their time, and we have extended that out indefinitely. Right? The story of civilization since the dawn of agriculture is a story of perpetual expansion more stimulation, more success, more more productivity, and really trying to wring out what I say, we're trying to wring out a sponge that's already dry. Like there's just no more there, you know? And so then the taking your foot off the gas and letting things slow down and and relaxing and being more present is the pivot to a more fall type experience. And that's not something that we all do all at the same time forever. It's just recognition that we've done too much of this other chronic summer thing we need to do a restorative mode of the sort of a contraction into fall and winter. And then we can come back around and do what is very much a normal oscillatory pattern and experience all the richness in all of those phases. Yeah, and you'll enjoy it more because if you, if it, if with all the changes and the contrast, each season then yeah. becomes beautiful. If it carries on too long, it becomes it, it becomes a burden. It's like if you living in a perpetual weekend where it's go go go, it can actually bring a lot of ang- you know a lot of anxiety along with For it. For sure, which is well. Now I'll, I'll pick a I'll pick a different pick a different perspective, a different uh, season. There, if you think about winter, you mentioned kind of bears and hibernating. In a way. The, the deep contraction and restoration that occurs in the wintertime is a sort of a semi-hibernative kind of space. And depression, including but not limited to seasonal, de- seasonal depression, is a sort of contractive, restorative space. It's, a, it's, a, it's an adaptation to our bodies being like, wow, I am stressed, I am exhausted, I am inflamed, I am dysregulated, and I need to be able to conserve resources to actually recover. So that's actually, to a certain extent, a normal experience in the winter time, but the problem is, is that because we have never given ourselves a chance to do that each winter, every year and decade that goes by, we get deeper and deeper into that space of like, wow, I'm really, really needing some restoration. And sometimes it requires a serious health crisis to get our attention and our bodies are like, 
okay. This is not okay anymore. And so people will often say to me, you know, I turned 40 and like my metabolism totally crashed and I had thyroid problems and I couldn't sleep anymore and it became anxious. And I was like, that's not something magical that happens as a result of age. It's a function of year upon year and decade upon of decade lifestyle. of cumulative damage. Yeah, it's just, it's just cumulative effect over long periods exactly. of time. And also it's the whole philosophy of the modern age, especially the last 30 to 60 years of if, if you feel depressed, there's something wrong with you. It's not something wrong with you. Right. It's not an illness. No. It's a message. It's a message that you've either got to slow down or restore. Like we know that I've been teaching on sleep for 38 years and I've been saying it's regenerative, it's restorative, it is where we, yeah. you know, the dream, all this stuff. And as you say, it's only really now that people are starting to look at sleep in a different way. But it's that that importance of being able to to accept and embrace. We, we, we don't want any kind of discomfort. So as soon as someone's sad, right. anxious or depressed, I get asked this question all the time. What's a good level of anxiety? Or what's a good level of depression? Right. It's any level because all of it's a message. And where yeah. it gets, if it gets crazy, obviously it just, it's just, you just got to manage it. But it's still a message that you have to embrace, which is and, what I'm hearing so, you say. And the winter time is, there's, sure. there's, it's a part of your season. You may be in that winter in the middle of summer. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. Well, and this is where you can kind of start to link multiple seasonal cycles together, right? Because if you think about, and, and this occurs across, of course, the, just the, the 24-hour day as well. If you don't go into a deep restorative sleep mode, you don't experience the next morning or the next springtime in the same vibrant, energetic way. If you haven't done the preceding season, the preceding phase properly in its entirety, the next stage, the next step is really muted and distorted and, and sort of flattened. So you have less rich experience on each of the successive seasons there. So in the same way as the spring is the sort of euphoric, energetic, dopamine-driven, novelty-seeking, exciting experience, which leads us into stress and productivity and, in, and very expansive experiences in, in summertime, we have to be able to accept that the, there is a quieting and settling and contracting in the fall and winter. And the calm, connected, grounded experience of serotonin and in the fall and in the evening, all of those things kind of stacked on top of each other is a really kind of good feeling, but it's not titillating and exciting and stimulating. It's not, you know, flashy and sensationalized. It's very calm and quiet and reserved and introspective and it's kind of you and your closest people but it's not all of the stuff out there and then going one step further into the winter into the deeply contractive mode it can be full of grief and heartache and regret and it is the time when we mourn the lost opportunities and the lost connections and that's a normal thing so i'm so glad to hear you say that there is a place for sadness things that we label as depression, but sometimes it's just actually the normal healthy processing of emotions like sadness and grief that we haven't given ourselves any space to do for sometimes years or decades before. And we're just, it's coming up as a, as a backlog of catching up with us now. It catches up. Eventually, eventually it will just start catching up with you. It eventually for does sure. just hit you because you can't suppress it for years and years of suppressing that kind of, and the, and the narrative is, is when it does explode, oh, now you're clinically depressed. That's not even scientific. Right. The way that they right. handle mental health is not, it's not at all based on a hardcore understanding of how mind actually works. So it's, it's a biomedical model. It's how the body works, but it's not how the mind right. works. So right. we've got to be able to embrace. And that's a huge part of the message that I teach as well. So I'm so glad. I love your description of it, be, of this because it's another way, another way of understanding that you're in a season of winter and it's okay. Don't freak out. You don't yeah. need a label and a drug. You just need to embrace it and process it and right. work through it, which is really right. important. So yeah, that's really fascinating. So one cool. of the tips you give in your book, let's, 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 let's wrap up with, with one, let's wrap up this question. So we've just, we've been talking, we're talking around mental health now. So let's, Bring, let's kind of close this discussion around, and I feel like we need lots more discussions around this because so my mind's going all over the place with all the things that we can explore more deeply. So I'd love to have you back again to, to explore some of these things more deeply. But let's talk about a mental health and mental health care routine because you've touched mm -hmm. on it. You started leading into that. So let's do a little, yeah. little bit of a summary around that to For help sure. people yeah. apply this to mental health. Yeah, so I think one of the the... the fairly reasonable kind of presuppositions that I come to this discussion with is that most of us are overstimulated, overwhelmed, overscheduled. Most of us are tired on many different levels, and most of us don't know what to do about it. 
because we have pragmatic limitations, we have schedule limitations, we have financial limitations. We just can't do all the things we say. Well, it'd be lovely to be able to, you know, sit peacefully in the sun and meditate for an hour in the morning before I go about my day, but I just can't do that. And that's one of the major challenges is that people have very tight schedules. And we think about civilization from a productivity standpoint, we've built a world that's more concerned with squeezing more productivity out of each individual than about building quality lives. We have not built a, we have not built a world that's good for people. We've built a world that is good for productivity, for economics, for institutions but not for individuals. And, and you know that that's playing out in the population statistics. I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but you know that that's, I'm not sure if you're aware that for no, decades, tell me about that. it's very interesting because for decades, people have been living longer because of the advances in medicine and technology. Mm-hmm. But between nine, 2014 and 2015, it had been a cumulative study, but it, the trend reversed. So now people are dying younger than they used to in this modern technological age. Despite- and they Despite, Despite all the, moder- the exactly. modern medical advantages. So, and it's yeah. been accumulating. It started in the they, – this particular group of studies started in the in the mid-90s. And this is when I was also doing, started doing my uh, – the sort of second phase of my research. And I noticed this change as well. I didn't do the direct studies, this population mm-hmm. statistics. But the, the trend shows that people are now dying younger. And in their peak, mm-hmm. between 24 and 65 is the age group currently that is being most affected by this mm-hmm. change in lifestyle. All, all ages are affected. But the, uh, the old – the generations are their lives are prolonged with medication, but they right. whatever have a surgery, whatever, but their quality of life has dropped. But people are actually dying 15 to 25 years younger from preventable lifestyle diseases, and that's mm-hmm. pretty much a summary of what we've been discussing because it's Absolutely. it's cumulative. If you don't take the time out, if you don't go through the seasons mm-hmm. of life, your mental health is going to be dramatically affected. For sure. So that's yeah, and it and it is. We we see the evidence now. It's, it, the evidence is there. You can only go so yeah. long, and then a pandemic hits or something hits. Yeah, so things right. you can't you can't mess with the earth for so long and expect no. no. Nature yeah. has a way of self self and recalibrating, um, exactly. whether we like it or not. I yeah. find it very interesting. We're in an era, and I would actually put this in my book, we're in a, in a very unique era of where we've got these pandemics occurring and we've got these people dying younger. It's kind of all happened around the same time because we've pushed mm-hmm. the boundaries of the yeah. earth and of ourselves as humans with modern technology. So we've got to, not that I'm anti-technology, like you said, it's great having electricity right. and thank goodness yeah. for internet, but it's a all about balance. So we have to recalibrate. Right. We have to get back in the cycles and the seasons again. Yes. So which is I can't so wait wonderful. for your book. <laughs> oh, well, I'm excited about yours. Thank you for yours. Dallas, where can people find out more about you and get your book? Yeah, Four Season Solution is available, um, you know, basically anywhere books are sold, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all, all of your independent booksellers. If they're not available at your local library, please ask for them. It's a great resource for people to have at their local library. And you can find more information on my website, dallashartwig.com. I don't do an awful lot on social media as indicated or as kind of recommended in the book because it's one of the ways that I personally have stepped away from the frenetic pace of, of chronic summer and moved into a more contracted fall type space. But I am on Instagram. I'm, I'm at Dallas Hartwig there and post there when I can. And I'll kind of check in and keep in touch. So thank you so much for having me. It's oh, no, it's been amazing, amazing talk- conversation. Oh, I've loved it too. Thank you so much. And guys, get this book. It's fantastic. We'll have all the links in the show notes. And Dallas, that was amazing. Thank you for your time. And it was, it's, let's do it again. It was fascinating. Let's. Love it. That'd be great. Thanks thank again. you. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf.
This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.